Thank you for tuning in. My name is Brittany, and I'm really excited that you're here to check out this new message with our current series, Redemption. Morning. Happy Easter. If you have a Bible, open it up to the New Testament. We'll get there. Somewhere in there. 1 Corinthians 15, more specifically. Well, my name is Stephen. I'm glad you decided to join us again. Happy Easter, and thanks for being here. Uh, this morning. So we're actually concluding an eight-week series, but if you weren't here for the first seven weeks, it's totally okay. I'm going to catch you up in just a few minutes. The aim of this series has been to understand this word redemption. We think it's such a good word. We named our church after it. And so we thought we should properly understand this term. And so to understand that term, it took us all the way back to the beginning, like the very beginning of human existence. And so we went all the way back to in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so all the way back there, God spoke into existence a perfect, beautiful creation where man made in God's image was the pinnacle of this creation in a garden. And in the garden, man existed in perfect relationship with God and perfect relationship with humanity and perfect relationship even with creation. And all of the world operated under God's values, peace and justice and righteousness. By the way, this morning, I'm going to give you six R's, R words, okay? And these six R words, I hope, will help you um, not just understand today's sermon, but they're kind of a picture of Christian doctrine in full. And in this perfect garden, the serpent in chapter three of our Bible, Genesis, slithers his way in and he gets uh, the woman first to cast doubt on God. Sin ends up breaking into the world and with sin, darkness and brokenness and death. And the first R, what happened in the garden is everything's ruined. I mean, just ruined. Creation ruined. The perfect relationship ruined and man responds by hiding. And we have to see that how will God respond to man ruining his beautiful, perfect creation? And right at the beginning of the Bible, we see the type of God or see who God is. And by the way, God, the same in the Old Testament, the same today and all through the story. And so God responds to sin first like this, not hitting reset, not blowing it all up, but by coming down into the garden. The God of the Bible is the God who, when he sees sin, sin and brokenness, doesn't run, but places himself in it. And so God shows up and he begins a conversation. And uh, near the end of the conversation, he says these words in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your, talking to Satan, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so the whole story then of the rest of the Old Testament spanning over 4,000 years is, will God keep his promise? Will he keep his promise to destroy the enemy, Satan? And so the story unfolds. A few hundred years later, God makes another promise to a guy by the name of Abraham. He tells him that uh, through his line or his seed, there will be a great nation and the Redeemer will come through Abraham's line. It's improbable because at the time, Abraham is really old and his wife is really old. Not like 45 really old, like 90 really old, if you're 45. <laughs> okay. God keeps his promise. 
And Abraham has a son, who has a son, who has a son. And these people become known as the Israelites or the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. And eventually they're enslaved in the land of Egypt. And while they're enslaved in the land of Egypt, God wants to set them free. And one of the ways uh, he sets them free is by sending these plagues. The 10th plague is the death of the firstborn. And uh, the firstborn of everyone in Egypt and Israel is going to die. But God gives a way out. And the way he does it, he starts a new tradition of the um, killing of an innocent lamb. It's called the Passover. Uh, the Jewish faith still celebrates it today. And, and the lamb is killed. The blood is put on the doorpost. And all who rest under the blood are saved from the wrath. This happens. And the Israelites are set free through a miraculous parting of a sea. They end up in uh, the promised land, and they have to fight some battles. They have different leaders, some judges, some kings. One of those kings' name is David. And all through this time of history, 3,000, 4,000 years passing, there are these prophecies made about the coming king or the coming Messiah or the coming Redeemer. One of the guys who wrote these prophecies is Isaiah, another one by the name of Micah, one by the name of Malachi, one by the name of Zephaniah. The very last of these was Malachi, and he gives a prophecy. And after he gives the prophecy of the coming Messiah, everything goes quiet for 400 years. After that 400 years, Jesus is born in Bethlehem at the fulfillment of a prophecy. This is an Easter service, I understand. We just had to hit Christmas first. So Jesus is born at the fulfillment of the prophecy. And right at the beginning of Jesus' life, we see a pattern. He fulfills messianic prophecy. Some people worship him. Some people want to kill him. 30 years later, Jesus grows up and uh, he's going to uh, kind of like enter into his public ministry. And when he does, he reads an Old Testament scripture written 700 years earlier as a fulfillment to prophecy. He fulfills the prophecy. Some people want to worship him. Some people want to kill him. Three years later, then Jesus rides on a donkey into Jerusalem during Passover celebration. He fulfills messianic prophecy. And at the beginning of the week, some people want to worship him, and they do. But then by the end of the week, the week that we just celebrated on our calendar, it comes to Friday, and they don't want to worship anymore. They want to kill him. And a few other times in Scripture, they've wanted to kill him. This time, they succeed. And so on what we know is Good Friday, Jesus his life isn't taken from him. He gives it up. And Jesus gives up his life. And so we want to ask, what happened on the cross? And what happened on that Sunday, the day that we remember today? And it starts with this idea in mind, that humanity ruined the perfect creation that God had made. And so after Jesus uh, was no longer on earth. Uh, there's this guy named Paul who becomes one of the most prolific writers of the New Testament. And he has this famous letter to the church in Ephesians called Ephesus. And in uh, the first chapter or the first part of that letter, he writes these words explaining later what happened on the cross. He says this, in him, we have redemption. That's your second R. First R, ruin. Second R, redemption. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Let's walk through the verse. In him, Paul starts off. In fact, in this sequence, by the way, um, it's the most time or the most densely um, usage of the name Jesus in all of scripture. And Paul just keeps talking about Jesus, but then he says, in him or in Jesus, as in to say this, there is no other path, there is no other plan, there is no other prophet, there is no other play for redemption other than him. 
And as Christians, we have to reject any doctrine that says there's any other teaching or any other faith base or any other religion or any other way to forgiveness of sin other than Jesus. Jesus is not one of many. He's not one of a select few. He is one and only. In Jesus, we, the we is both um, uh, corporate and segmented. Uh, it's, it's corporate in that uh, the Old Testament was really the story of the Jewish people, uh, but every once in a while, uh, God would work non-Jewish people into the story to show that someday he would expand his family. So the we is both Jew and Gentile, but not universal. Not, not just every Jew and Gentile. No, every Jew and Gentile who will bow bended knee to Jesus. In him, we, those who will bow to Jesus as king, have redemption. Redemption. Now, this word redemption, Old Testament, New Testament, wherever it is used, always means one thing, a payment. A payment. In him, in Jesus, we all who will accept and believe in Christ have a payment. Well, a payment for what? For the rebellion or the ruining that happened in the garden. See, when sin broke into the world, it changed humanity. We all now bear the image of our first father, Adam, scripture teaches us. Paul would write it later like this. He would say, we were all children of wrath. Uh, My wife, uh, she leads our, our music up here. And uh, we have an 18 month old and she's always watching videos on YouTube. And I, I, we always joke about, we should create a kid's album called Children of Wrath. We'll have some great songs like the Itsy Bitsy Pagan, right? Or um, Baby Satan, Baby Satan, do do, right? And we'll work into these nice YouTube videos, some good doctrine. And what is the good doctrine? that we're not born innately good. We're born with a war being waged, us against God. This is the natural state of humanity. Itsy bitsy pagans. And outside of something, each of us have a destiny and it's called death. And so into this ruining, in him, We have a payment for the rebellion against God. Your rebellion, my rebellion, everyone's rebellion. And the payment was for sin, sin and sin alone. That's what the payment was for. The payment was made to a holy God, a perfect God who has every bit because he's holy and perfect and created something and we ruined it to take out his wrath. And Jesus goes to the cross in order to take that wrath for you and me. In him, we have a payment for our sins. How did the payment occur? Through the blood of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So let's correct the first of false doctrines that emerge around Easter. Jesus doesn't die on the cross. You and I don't have forgiveness of sin. If we look at Jesus' death as some kind of cosmic example, if we think God is mean, right, because he took his wrath out, uh, if we think that forgiveness should be able to just happen uh, without any type of payment, these are false, incorrect teachings. There is salvation through one thing and one thing alone, the death of Jesus and his blood shed. And we have that. In him, we have redemption through his 
blood, the blood of Jesus shed is the payment made to satisfy the wrath of God, and it results in the forgiveness of our sins, the complete exoneration of uh, our sins. That God has forgotten them, that when you and I stand in Jesus before a holy God, he sees our sin no more, we're forgiven. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The tagline there on the end is that you and I can never earn this, not our best behavior, not our high moral aptitude, and not our Easter Sunday attendance, and not our largest or most generous gift, that this can only be received, it cannot be earned, that it is freely bestowed by a loving, gracious, and kind God through Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Let's recap. We ruined everything. And then Jesus paid the redemption on the cross. And what if the story stopped there? What if it was just two R's, ruin and redemption? What then? I mean, on one hand, we ought to be just incredibly grateful. Our payment was made right there on the cross. But Paul addresses this question later. False doctrine was moving around the church of Corinth, and Paul had to address it. He had to address it, and the false doctrine was that the resurrection wasn't an actual physical, literal resurrection. It was just allegorical. It was just an idea. It was a concept. It was a picture of new beginnings. But it wasn't a real, physical, Jesus walking out of the tomb, now alive type of resurrection. And so Paul wants to address this, and he gets to chapter 15 of his famous letter to the church in Corinthians, and he says these words, and if Christ has not been raised or resurrected, that's your third R, and if Christ has not been resurrected, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Said another way, redemption without resurrection is powerless. The payment is made, but he says right here, if there's no resurrection, you're still in your sin. It's like you're sitting in it, it's been paid for, but you have no ability to get out of it. And so uh, it might be paid for, but there's no new life. There's, there's nothing happening. So far that Paul's going to say, if there is no physical, literal, actual resurrection, then, uh, then it, it, the death thing was futile, meaningless almost. Ruin, redemption, and resurrection. From resurrection comes the power of newness. Redemption was the payment. Resurrection is the power. So then what of this resurrection? What do we have to do with it or the knowledge of it? Well, we get to see on Jesus' first day as a resurrected being, recorded throughout the four different gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get to see Jesus interact with four different either individuals or groups of people throughout uh, on his resurrection Sunday. And we get to see how these four groups of people respond to Jesus and the news of his resurrection. And I wonder, or I think, that you may be able to find yourself in one of these four groups. The first person who meets Jesus on his resurrection day is a woman by the name of Mary. We're told in previous life, Mary uh, is a prostitute and has demon possession. 
Let's just say there was some trouble in Mary's life. Mary had met Jesus at one point and hope had begun to reemerge and she had changed, but then she saw that hope die on the cross on Friday. And so if you've ever felt like you watched hope vanish, then you know how Mary felt on that particular night. Mary finds herself, though, at the tomb on Sunday morning. And as she's there, there's a man there. And uh, she starts a conversation with the man whom she thinks is a gardener. And she's having this conversation with the person as a picture to us that we can be so close to Jesus and not know it. And Mary's having this conversation with this, this person. And then the person says, Mary. And in the moment he says her name, she knows who it is. That's Jesus. And Mary worships him, teaching us that Jesus calls us by name. And some of you have felt that call, or maybe you will feel it today. Jesus calling you by name. It's another individual. It's not a guy. He meets Jesus on Resurrection Sunday. We're told his name's Peter, one of Jesus's closest friends. We're told in two separate times in scripture that Jesus and Peter had a conversation on uh, Resurrection Sunday. But here's what we're not told, what the conversation was about. Neither one of the two accounts tell us what they talked about. We just know that they talked. Here's what we do know. That on the night of Jesus's um, trial, uh, that Peter betrayed Jesus. Like, like, turned his back on Jesus, his closest friend. Let me say this a different way. Peter committed an offense that seemed unforgivable. Jesus or Peter ruined his relationship with Jesus in that moment. Committed such an egregious offense. And, and not only did he commit the egregious offense, but he committed it in a moment where he didn't have time to even talk to Jesus again before he died and to fix it. And so he was going to then live for the rest of his existence in the guilt and the shame of what he had done. Said another way, if you carry a weight of an act of offense, Maybe it's against God. Maybe it was against someone else. Maybe it was something in your past. And it feels like a weight that can never be lifted. Look at Peter. And see how Jesus seeks him out and finds him on his first day back and restores him. Later, by the way, we would see a conversation between Jesus and Peter. And this time he tells him, and not just, hey, it's okay, we're, we're good again, you're forgiven. But he actually says, and I've got great work for you to do. In other words, this moment of sin will not define you. Something greater will. Third group that Jesus meets on Resurrection Sunday. Two men, they're walking on the road to Emmaus. Uh, that's a town. And as they're walking, two things we learn about these guys. First, they thought that Jesus, incorrectly thought, that Jesus had come to set up a, a, a physical, literal kingdom on earth and were deeply disappointed when he died. Because they say, we had thought he would redeem Israel. In other words, we, we had thought that he would set us free from Israel. Uh, what that would mean for us is, is they looked at Jesus and his greatest gift to them as something physical. That's what they thought about Jesus. What you will do for me most is something on this earth. The second thing we learn about these men is that they knew their Old Testament because as they were walking, it's what they talked about. 
They talked through the entire Old Testament. In other words, they talked through everything that we've talked to as a church over the last seven weeks, or if you grew up in church, all of the stories of the Old Testament as they're on their long journey, by the way, with Jesus. This is these two and Jesus, and they don't recognize Jesus, and they're walking with them as a sign that you and I can walk on a path where uh, down a religious path, and we're looking at Jesus wrong the entire time. That we can actually be walking the same road with Jesus and not understand. And then what happens at the end of the story? Jesus sits down with him and he breaks bread. And it says, the moment he broke the bread, the moment he broke the bread, which is a symbol of um, one, his body being broke, uh, but it is also the breaking of bread is a symbol of communion or of relationship. The moment they broke the bread, their eyes opened. Their eyes opened. And here's what they realized when their eyes were open. Two things. One, that what Jesus came to do most, most, was to save them from their sins. That the redemption Jesus came to give was spiritual, primary, or first. Earthly, secondary. The second thing. In other words, we don't go to Jesus to get stuff. We go to Jesus to get Jesus. Secondly, what they realized is that all of their religion all of the knowledge about the Bible, all of the church attendance, all of the practices, all of the acts of Christian faith, all of those things, all that they knew, if we don't realize how it all points to Jesus, means nothing. That all of religion finds its hope, its center, and its truth in Jesus. It's at the moment that they recognized them, their hearts were open, their eyes were open, and their hearts came alive. You know what this means? It means you could have done this Easter service for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and yet your eyes haven't yet been opened and your heart hasn't yet come alive. But in a moment, Jesus can turn it on and can open it up. This is salvation, this is new birth. This is when you see it's all about Jesus. Fourth group, the, the 11, his disciples. They're in a room, and as they're in the room, probably eating, I think they were eating, they're eating, door is shut, and in pops Jesus. Okay, so this one's a little freaky. Jesus pops in. Hey, guys, they freak out. Granted, right? He says to them, peace, peace out, cool, peace right? They calm down, but then they begin to express doubt, saying, this, this, this just can't be you. It's a spirit. This can't be real. And Jesus is with them. And so he looks at them and he says, come and touch me. In other words, let me prove it to you. And so maybe this is more where you find yourself you just can't believe that the resurrection is a physical, literal, actual resurrection. And I tried to show you earlier that without a physical, literal, actual resurrection, this whole thing is meaningless. But you find yourself there. It's a nice story. It's a beautiful picture of rebirth. Oh, salvation. It's the redemption payments and the physical, literal resurrection now the power to walk out this new salvation. And if you find yourself in that spot, then I would say, when Jesus said to them, go to him, go to Jesus, he will prove it to you, I promise. 
So we see four people and their response. By the way, that was fourth R. Their response to Jesus. And so we have a ruining. We have a redemption payment. We have a resurrection power. And then we have a response on the part of humanity. What do we do now with Jesus' actual resurrection? Now, let me tell you what happens on the other side of the response. Uh, and those are for those whose eyes are open and those who believe in the story of Christ. And let me say this too, that no decision is a decision. So our friends have like an 11 or a 12-year-old. And um, whenever we go out to eat, it's like, hey, do you want A or B? And they always say, what? Oh, no. And then the waitress comes over, you want A or B? I don't know. And so I've just started to say when they're with them, then you don't want either one, right? Okay, no, I'm not even their parents, so it's not even really my job. But that's not the point. The point is, no decision is a decision. No decision about Jesus as resurrected king is a decision. It's the decision to stay in death. It's a decision to stay in the domain of darkness. It's a decision to continue to be enslaved to sin and under the penalty of it. No decision is a decision. But for those then who respond to Christ and their eyes are open, the next thing that Paul's going to write a little bit later on in, the, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, in other words, just as you and I resembled Fithar, just as you and I resembled Adam. Now, when he says we resembled Adam, this is what he means. He means uh, that we were just created beings who are dying on a path toward death and we're under the law and we're controlled by the flesh. That's what he means. He says, but just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall now, because of redemption and because of resurrection, my word's not in there, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words, you will now begin to resemble Jesus. Now, Jesus is not a created being. He is the creator. He's not dying. He's eternal. He's not under the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's not controlled by the flesh. He's controlled by the spirit. In other words, you and I now begin to resemble the risen Christ. In that then we move from condemned to guiltless. We move from enslaved to free and from darkness to light. We are now resembling Jesus. This is what the power of the resurrection in your response does. It begins to transform you as someone who resembles Jesus. See, the, uh, the Bible, you could say, is rightly broken up into two stories. The first story is how humanity, or the, the first man, Adam, ruined everything. And so God created a perfect earth, and then man ruined it. But the second story doesn't start with a perfect earth. The second story starts with a perfect man. And the perfect earth is the end of the story. And so God goes from a perfect earth that he created, we ruined it. God makes a promise. Jesus comes, pays the payment of our sin, resurrects as the perfect sinless sacrifice. And now through our response, we begin to resemble Jesus and to rebuild the broken earth. And the end of the story is a perfected earth again. Or said another way, you and I, Reign, sixth star, victorious with Jesus. Not just in eternity, now. Paul says it this way. The sting of death 
is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Let me explain those words real quick. What he's saying is the brokenness that you have felt in relationships, the bitterness that you hold to the person who hurt you, the pain when they said they would and they didn't, the hurt when you thought they won't let me down and they did. The guilt, because you never thought you would, but you did. The shame, because you thought if you were just good enough long enough, that feeling would go away and you'd sleep through the night. The sickness, the, the brokenness that you look out in a world and say, how can this be? Why is it like this? All of that is the sting of sin. The constant quest that humanity is on then to fix a broken world or to fix ourselves then is the sting of the law. And every time you think you're finally breaking through, but you relapse into whatever it might be, this is our inability to live up to the standard. And that is the course of humanity unless, Paul writes, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now, you and I have strength over sin. And we have victory over death. And we reign with Jesus in his victory, rebuilding what was lost in the garden. Ruin, redemption, resurrection, response. Have you responded to the gospel? Have you responded to the state of sin? You say, well, I, I don't know. I think I have. I, I don't know. Let me tell you how you know. Because you're now resembling Jesus more and more. How do you know? Because you're now reigning in his victory. The shame and the guilt of sin are falling off. The love for the world and what it has to offer is slowly disappearing. And you are free in Jesus. That's how you know you've responded. So I want to give you a chance to do that. Let's pray. Thank you so much for checking out this message. If you'd like to know more on our church, you can go to experienceredemption.com.